Overdrive. Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that looks at all forms of transport from the humble bike through to rocket-powered space travel. I'm David Brown and in this week's program we have new stories with David Campbell, including the Canadian government invests in zero emission vehicles and a Scottish safety initiative combats speeding and tailgating. We talk to Rob Fraser about the things cars try to do for you that are meant to be helpful, but they're not. Alan Zervis road tests the base model Kia Picanto, and Brian Smith and I talk about new ways to deliver your parcels and how much it costs to advertise on a Formula One car. You can find out more information at drivenmedia.com.au or previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. Or you could look at our Facebook site, Overdrive City. So let's get the program going. Let's start with the news. The EU has announced a range of new safety measures that will be mandatory on all new cars by 2022. Among the measures set to become law are the compulsory fitment of autonomous emergency braking and lane departure warning systems, plus driver drowsiness and attention warnings. But the one system on the approved list that is likely to change driving forever, and the one opposed by both car companies and enthusiasts, is intelligent speed assistance. ISA works by using traffic sign recognition cameras or GPS data to determine the maximum speed where you are driving and then automatically restrict engine power and your speed to the prevailing limit. The push for this speed limiting technology is being spearheaded by the European Transport Safety Council which says the limiters will reduce accidents by 30% and save 25,000 lives within 15 years of coming into force. The ETSC has also suggested that if the driver continues to drive above the speed limit for several seconds, the system should sound a warning for a few seconds and display a visual warning sign until the vehicle is operating at or below the speed limit. Mandatory data loggers would also be fitted to all new cars under the ETSC's program. The safety body has indicated that it will push for even stricter rules in the future, which would seem to indicate systems that are impossible to override. Whilst electric vehicles continue to be in the headlines in Australia, the Government of Canada has announced that it will invest $300 million over the next three years in zero emission vehicles. The Canadian Minister of Transport said that the Government of Canada is working to accelerate the adoption of zero emission vehicles to help make it easier for motorists to be part of the solution to climate change and to reduce their daily driving costs. Drivers who purchase or lease an eligible battery, electric, fuel hydrogen cell or plug-in hybrid vehicle will receive up to $5,000, with $2,500 available for shorter range plug-in hybrid vehicles. The budget also provides support to expand the network of charging and refuelling stations. Proton looks set to relaunch in Australia with a new model range expected to come on stream as part of a joint venture with Chinese automotive giant Geely. Geely purchased a 49% stake in the Malaysian brand in 2017. 
Proton has been operating in Australia under a factory distribution arrangement, however sales of its ageing range have petered out in recent years from 421 units in 2015 to 38 in 2017 and just one solitary sale last year. With Geely buying up a large stake in the Malaysian carmaker, the Chinese manufacturer has plans to use protein as a new channel into right-hand drive markets, including Australia, with a range of Geely-sourced and co-developed models. Motorists caught speeding or tailgating on a prominent road in Scotland will receive warning alerts as part of a new scheme to deter potentially life-threatening behaviour. Vehicle-activated signs have been installed along the A701 as part of the scheme undertaken by Transport Scotland. Drivers travelling too close to the vehicle ahead will be warned to leave a two-second gap, while those speeding will be made aware of the speed limit for their vehicle, along with a message to slow down. It follows a similar initiative on an English motorway, which monitoring shows led to a 31% reduction in collisions. When it came to driving too close to the vehicle in front, or tailgating on the route, cars and motorcycles were found to be the worst offenders with 26% travelling within two seconds of the vehicle in front, compared with 17% of medium-sized vehicles. For nearly a century, the hydrogen energy economy has been the greenest pipe dream. Inventors, theorists and wealthy entrepreneurs have envisaged whole societies powered by the chemical reaction that occurs when hydrogen meets air. But the cost and efficiency of hydrogen fuel cells has held back widespread adoption. As prices drop for renewable power, some researchers hope that Hawaii could be the ideal testbed for hydrogen fuel cells in public transportation. In the coming months, a hydrogen-powered shuttle bus will be integrated into the Hawaii County Transit Fleet, seeded by grants from the U.S. Department of Energy and the Office of Naval Research. The Suzuki Jimny was recently declared the 2019 World Urban Car in the Road to the World Car Awards. The three finalists for the award were the Kia Soul, the Hyundai AH2 Centro and the Suzuki Jimny. Overdrive's David Brown was heard to ask, how can a four-wheel drive with a wheezy engine and poor safety credentials win an urban award? Mind you, it does look very distinctive, great character and a reasonable price. That has been the news. Sometimes cars do things for you that are meant to be helpful, but they're not what you want. I stopped the other day because I thought I saw something, it was at night, that was just a little suspicious, and I thought that I might just uh, just see what happens, and if need be, then I can perhaps pass it on to the police or so on. So I stopped the car, it was the new Mini, the Mini Cooper, pulled over, turned the engine off, and because as soon as I did that, the interior lights came on. I was lit up like a Christmas tree. That's not what I wanted. Now I have the disadvantage of only having the car for a week, so to turn the lights off became difficult. Do cars do things for you that annoy you, even though they try to be helpful? Rob Fraser, of course, our good colleague, uh, helps me talk about this. Rob, have I hit a nerve there? Uh, David, yes. I, I, it's, it's one of my pet bugs, actually. Cars that, that think they're more intelligent than you are. Yes. By the way, I mentioned this to somebody and they said, what were you stalking? <laughs> I want to clarify, it was civic duty. 
Yes. I was trying to do the right thing. Uh, the other one I hate is when you get into a car and turn the ignition on and the radio comes back on a preset level. Now, the first thing in the morning as I get up and go out and are worrying about backing the car, I don't want to think about the radio. I wanted to remember that I turned it off the night before. Does that annoy you? Yeah, look, that one that one annoys me as well. And the other one annoys me, some cars you jump into, when you hop on the Bluetooth, they will mute the radio automatically. Hmm. And others, the radio will just keep blaring away, so you've got to turn it down yourself. The other thing is, if I'm listening to a podcast and I think, no, I don't want that, so I press the, the touch screen to go to the next one and it just pauses it. It doesn't go to the next one. Yeah, it's just tiny little things which the user interface in some cases with the cars is frustrating. Now, another one that bugs me is, and again, probably more an issue because we swap cars so often, if you are looking or or listening to some satellite navigation instructions and the phone goes, in some cars it will just completely remove the screen so you can't even see where you go and there's no instructions. And you're trying to tell the person to get off and all of a sudden they're talking away and you've you've missed the last right turn for 18 kilometres. Yes. <laughs> and so there are little things that frustrate you. You know, one thing that actually did frustrate me the most was when I was picking up my girls from school. Sorry, David, you've started me on a process here. <laughs> Don't hold back, Rob. <laughs> tell me what you think. I'm going to roll. Is, is cars automatically lock doors these days? And that's a good thing. Hmm. But the unlock button in almost every car is in a totally different position Mm. and so when i went to pick up the girls from school and it happened often when it was raining i'd pull up and i'd be looking at it and going where's the unlock button and they're outside giving me those filthy looks that only teenage girls can give you yes and i'm trying to find the unlock button for the door which is in a different place in every car and some cars don't even have them you have to actually open the door to unlock all of the all of the doors and if you lean over and unlock the passenger door at the front it may not unlock the one at the back Absolutely. Here's another one. The Hyundai SUVs, a couple of them, have this lovely thing that if you're carrying, well, it helps very much if you're carrying your shopping to the back of the car. If you stand at the back of the car and have the key fob in your pocket, it'll detect you're there and it'll open it. Now, that's fine, except the other day I got out of the car and waited around the back of the car for someone who's going to pick up and bush, I suddenly got thumped in the back because the door opened. At least it works for you. I I end up looking like a long neck goose doing some sort of a weird dance, kicking my leg behind the car, and it never works for me. So That's the one where you wave your foot under the bumper bar to try and get it to open. How many times have you stood in a shopping centre doing the hokey pokey? Yeah, I I give up. I just – some of that technology. And and while we're talking about those rear doors – Again, when you're picking up somebody or whatever, you pull up and you press the button to open the rear hatch and it won't open until you turn the engine off. Yes, and have the doors locked. And I don't know, I reckon it's at least 60% of the rear hatch buttons don't work for me. Yeah, It's like Microsoft, to turn it off, you've got to go Control-Alt-Delete. You know, you've got to do some sort of process that defies logic but if you're in the know it's like working with adobe software if you're in the know you've got it down pat but to get in the know is now taking hours and hours and hours perhaps trying to even cope with an incomprehensible user manual and i think it's probably as we said before probably exacerbated by the fact that we do swap cars and if it was your own car as you said with the mini you would work out how to have that light turned on or off but but something that's for all vehicles, hmm. 
How many times do you actually grab a couple of bags of shopping, stick them on the front passenger seat, drive off, and all of a sudden the seatbelt ding, ding, ding is going off? And you, you drive, while you're driving, you pull over, you're trying to lift one of the bags off so that it stops going off, and mm. it just it drives you nuts at times. It might not be just for those of us who swap cars every week. If we are going to a world where we share cars or we use Uber-type cars or local renter cars more, getting Absolutely. into a car that you don't know is going to be a challenge in many cases throughout your daily life. Absolutely spot on, and absolutely spot on, and because a lot of those vehicles are very different, and you know, everything is in a different place in every different car. So you're right, you're right. The the other thing that I find frustrating is when you're driving along and a car will bing at you, <laughs> and you have no idea what it's binging for, yes. and so you look down at the dash, and you know some light disappears, and you think, what was that? And then it bings again, and you've got no idea, and it keeps binging at you, and you go and. and you know, what is wrong with this car? I had one that showed me a little symbol, and I thought the symbol looked like Aladdin's lamp. It turned out it was two cars very close together because the adjustable cruise control wasn't working or something. But I had to go home and do a lot of research to try and understand what that symbol meant. That's another story anyway. Uh, Rob, I raised this off-the-cuff topic I wondered if we might get a little bit of comment about it. I think we've raised an issue that needs to be taken further. You're right, David. It's probably best not to start me too much on it. <laughs> it's too late. <laughs> <laughs> Rob, thanks for your time. Thanks, David. That's Rob Fraser talking about the things that we hate on cars where they try to be helpful but end up like a two-year-old child making a whole mess of things. You're listening to Overdrive. This week on our Overdrive City Facebook page, we show the video of our testing the Hino 500 truck, including on the skid pan, and we show a few pictures of the unique Mini Cooper dashboard, coloured lights and all. That's Facebook page Overdrive City, one word. You're listening to Overdrive. Well, Alan Zervis and I went to the launch a month or two ago of the Kia Picanto GT, their little performance model, perhaps a little optimistic to call it a GT, but it was one that was made to go just a little bit quicker. But now I've been driving the base models. I think that reflects my more modest approach to things. But uh, let's see if we can uh, compare the two or talk about more just where the base models are at. And Alan joins me on the line. Alan, thanks again for your time. You're welcome, David, as always. The overall look of the car as a, a little urban car, do you like it? I do, very much. Uh, and I, I've always liked that, uh, that class of car. Do you remember the little Volkswagen Up? I thought it was adorable. And I think that's where these tiny city cars come into their own, is that they're so easy to park, so easy to drive, almost to the point where the power and so forth is uh, irrelevant. I think this little Picanto has a distinctiveness like the original Mini. Got its own sort of character without just being a smaller version of a normal sedan. It, it it's obviously looks a bit stubby, but that's what you expect and that's what you really like about it. 
It is. And Australia has been very slow to adopt that, uh, you know, that K-car style of car. So the little kind of SUV, stubby, boxy SUVs. But for some reason, we're quite okay with a mini-sized car. And I think that's where our strength is, is in the places like, say, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, where you've got a lot of traffic. A little car, the smaller the car, the easier it is to manoeuvre. I've taken a picture or two of it in a parking space. The wonderful thing, it looks small compared to these other things around it, typically SUVs, but the other thing about this is just such wonderful room to get in and out of it. Indeed, and I think that's why the sales of this particular car have been so good. They've virtually redefined the segment. For the month of March, up until the month of March, the segment has declined. Now, it grew last year against all trends for sedan or or hatchbacks-type vehicles, but it's down 5.5%, but then again, the whole market is down over 7%. So the Picanto has really kept that small size going. Now, do you know, up so far this year, they've sold nearly 80% of that small car class. Not big numbers, but total dominance. Well, Kia told me that they actually didn't expect this car to do that well. They thought they uh, just wanted a foot in a segment, uh, as many car companies do, and that uh, looks so long as they had a representation in that uh, area that they'd be okay. Holden Spark is gone. Of course, we know the Nissan Micra went some time ago. The only other real players in the field are the Fiat 500, which is, I think, quirky at a price, and the Mitsubishi Mirage, which is really quite old in its design. Well, Mirage is ancient, but uh, actually the first Mirage I quite liked, but the, the current one, I, ne- I never warmed to it. But Fiat 500, though, I love those. I just can't drive them. <laughs> yeah. This little one, 62 kilowatts, is not a lot, 122 newton metres, not a lot. But then again, you're, you really only want to drive it around the city. That's right. Uh, the other thing, of course, too, with the, the top model, the GT, is it only comes in a manual, mm. whereas the uh, other models come in an automatic, albeit a four-speed. There is a thing about it, though. I find it's a little noisy driving along, the comfort of it, but particularly I had two versions. I had the real base version, and then I had the GT line which is not the turbo engine, just a little 1.2-litre, normally aspirated four-cylinder engine. But it, it looked like your GT. It had those colour inserts down the side, down the sill, and around the lights a little. But I've got to say, though, when you went up to that, you went up to a, a larger-sized rim, and therefore a lower-ratio tyre. And I think that just made the noise factor worse. Well, you and I indeed have been on many a launch uh, in the same car, driving, uh, you know, sort of as partners, and we've always commented that the lower the profile of the tyre, the less comfortable it is. And we've always asked the question, why don't they just have an option with the same external diameter, just make the sidewall slightly higher, a little bit more comfort, a little bit less noise? This is an entry-level car. I think it's about just over 14,000 plus on roads to get into it. The GT Line, which has got more comfort features, including an armrest for the driver, which is nice, that's about 17,100, but the GT is about 18,000. So it is getting into a new car with a seven-year warranty. Now, they've just announced the World Urban Car of the Year. We've done a news story on it. Can you guess what it is? 
Um, um, I'm going to say a Rolls Royce. <laughs> it is the Suzuki Jimny. <laughs> yes, I, I did see that. And uh, having been in it, I've never driven it, but I did sit, sit in it while somebody rocked it backwards and forth. <laughs> I can't imagine what that's like on the road. Alan, how good it is to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. As always, David, thank you very much. And next week we will talk about the history of... This is Overdrive across Australia. And this week some not-so-quirky news with Brian Smith. Brian, there is another technical issue. The Mayor and the, the Transport for London group have launched a major plan to help freight delivery for Londoners. I like this idea because it is changing our concept of deliveries within the city, not just personal cars. Because for all our talk about stopping people driving to the city and to the CBD, not a lot of people do that. It's an awful lot to do with delivering things. And Brian, I think you've highlighted the problem some time ago, again from a London statistic, that most of the deliveries of parcels, little parcels, to the CBD area is for private people while they're at work. Yes, this is driven by uh, online shopping. And so people who are purchasing products and having them delivered to their offices and that the, the, the high proportion of delivery traffic now in London, and it's the, we're experiencing the same thing in Australian cities, um, the, the high proportion of these uh, vehicle delivery movements that are driven by these private deliveries to commercial businesses is it's substantial and growing in a very substantial way. And I think that they, the um, London was predicting something like a 22% increase between 2011 and 2031 in these light goods vehicles. So there's been a challenge for a lot of cities in terms of how to reduce that and uh, click and collect sort of things and parcel pickup at your closer to home, so at a, at a transport interchange. And even the New South Wales government commissioned a study looking into uh, having sort of parcel delivery at major railway stations. So it's a big issue. And London's plan is uh, including things like click and collect points, but also moving to, uh, you know, electric freight deliveries and freight deliveries by uh, sort of bicycle. So that you may not have the standard big van that picks up in the outer suburbs and goes all the way into the inner city area. You may have a depot point where it has to go to a small electric vehicle which will circulate around with less noise and obviously less local, well, no local pollution. Yeah, some of the, the sort of uh, main streets have banded together to create plans where uh, goods are delivered to a central point and then, then distributed in a more coordinated way to reduce the number of vehicle movements. Brian, would you like to put, if you had a product to sell, the name on a Formula One race car? Or well, maybe for the next couple of years before the Formula One is, is rendered obsolete, David, <laughs> by, by uh, e-racing, e racing, which will be very, very quiet. But, uh, yeah, look, if I was, I, I would probably want to have mine, well, two things. I, I, I guess to be successful, I'd want it attached to the most successful motor racing team, but I wouldn't want to be associated with some of the other advertisers that 
that are associated with the very uh, high-profile and successful teams. I wonder, too, whether you'd like to be associated with some of the drivers <laughs> seem yes, to have yes. their own form of anger, anger management issues might might be the thing. Well, of course, the figures have come out about uh, what the sponsorship deals have been. And Top of the Pops is not the winning team at the moment. The winning team, of course, is Mercedes, but rather tradition is ruling in terms of getting money because Ferrari seems to top the list with somewhere around 255 to $285 million worth of sponsorship and that's US dollars, so add a fair amount more for Australian dollars. Well ahead of Mercedes, Aston Martin, Red Bull, which are, are, those are the successful ones. McLaren, no, that hasn't done. Well, Williams is up there getting a lot of money, yet they've had immense catastrophe, even to the point of not getting a car to the first practice session, not for a race, but actually a scheduled practice session. They didn't get a car to it. They've had immense trouble doing it. So it's a, a reflection of things other than just first past the post. That's good, David, because I think that's what's happening, is that the, the people who are affected by the advertising are not very knowledgeable about the sport. Okay. And so it's always been said that at any event, you could say to somebody wearing a Ferrari shirt, can you name the drivers before the current driver? And generally they can't <laughs> because they're, they're just backing Ferrari because it's Ferrari. It's like people wearing Manchester United ah. jerseys and knowing nothing about the team. It's the, the concept of the most successful brand, Ferrari, as obviously attracts the most uh, successful advertising. Though, I've got to say, their major sponsor is Philip Morris International, cigarette manufacturers. They're not allowed to to basically show any cigarette advertising on cars anymore, but Philip Morris is still their number one advertiser. And you know how they do it, David? They have a, they have a Mission Winnow brand, which apparently reflects um, – changes being made at the tobacco company to to help health i guess so they they're advertising but in a very stealthy way <laughs> don't you think they should advertise e-racing electric racing then yes maybe they should but i'd like to see no manu you know cigarette manufacturers involved in this at all it'd be like having a dani uh, <laughs> as a major sponsor i think there you go all right brian beautiful thank you david Lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. Bye. And that was Brian Smith, and we were talking some unusual stories and a bit of a serious issues to do with motoring and transport. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Brian Smith, David Campbell, Alan Zervis, Rob Fraser and Paul Just for their great contributions. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can find more information at drivenmedia.com.au and previous programs are available as podcasts on iTunes or Spotify. And of course we have our Facebook page, Overdrive City. Next week we will talk to Alan about his reflections on the history of Citroen and catch up again with Molly Taylor, our great Australian rally driver, about what it's like 
to try and get into the rally driving business. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. <laughs>